hello everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 46 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I spoke with Amit Pandey, the CEO of Velocity Snack Brands. Formed by private equity firm VMG Partners in 2019, Velocity Snack Brands seeks to acquire, develop, and grow a portfolio of leading better-for-you snack brands. Following the recent acquisition of Pop Chips, Velocity Snack Brands has already launched two new product lines under the Pop Chips brand, including grain-free and corn-popped chips. In this episode, Amit shares with us his journey from stocking shelves as a kid in his parents' gift shop, to working in investment banking, to spending almost a decade building a low-calorie dessert brand called Arctic Zero, to partnering with VMG Partners, where he currently leads Velocity Snack Brands. He talks with us about his leadership style, how to have an effective meeting, why margins matter most, how to think about packaging, and how he evaluates companies. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an amazing review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Amit, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your awesome journey in becoming the CEO of Velocity Snacks. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to share with you. Awesome. So let's uh, go way back to the early days. Where are you from originally? What was childhood like for you? I I was born in London, England, uh, but grew up in South Florida and Southern California. I sort of, I, I, you could kind of say I was an entrepreneur from when I was old enough to talk. Why is that? Was your first so, word entrepreneur? <laughs> no. Um, so uh, I remember and my parents still never let me forget it to this day that when I was about four or five, I'd try and make my parents pull over every time we drove anywhere where you saw reflectors on the road. I, I, I used to say, oh my God, they're diamonds. We have to stop. We have to get our shovels and screwdrivers, which were tools of the trade back then mm-hmm. uh, to dig them up so we could be rich. That was, that was, I, they, they actually would never pull, pull over? Up. No, they never pulled Why? over. I feel like they was, should have to show you that you can't actually dig it up, you know? I think they wanted to keep the hope alive. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work? Uh, I, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. So, um, you know, my, my background is, um, it's pretty interesting, I think, that um, so my, my parents emigrated from England. Uh, they they moved here with $75 wow. uh, and two suitcases. Um, you know, my dad grew up in Africa. I'm a mom in the outskirts of, of Bombay. And, you know, we were we were very blue collar. Uh, I'd been instilled from an early age. They had to work hard and earn money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and my parents had a small store selling newspapers and cards. 
and we actually lived above it. So I, I remember working weekends and afternoons and every holiday, um, including Christmas, like stocking the store. Yeah. Um, I'm a mean bagger and I can, uh, <laughs> gift wrap better than most. My wife now makes me gift wrap everything. Um, bagger is funny. I used to work at a grocery store way back. One of my first jobs. And to this day, I'm like, I'm the best grocery store bagger ever. You know, I can get that stuff in there. I know exactly the dimensions of everything to make it all fit in. <laughs> telling you when, when someone puts eggs at the bottom, I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what is wrong with you? How do you, what, where do you learn this? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so it's, so when, when I was a kid, I only really had, you know, kids, kids have aspirational dreams. I really only had one dream as a kid and that was not to be poor. Hmm. Like I, I wanted to be able to afford the food I wanted, the shoes I wanted, the clothes I wanted to yeah. be able to go to college. Like those were, those were like, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like those are very, not, not really inspirational goals, but like, that was really all I thought about when I was yeah. a kid. Um, Did you do anything unique to kind of that kind of like, you know, you think back and, and that kind of proves that because I'm just thinking, I remember myself, I used to, you know, when I was younger going to the grocery store with my mom, I'd get so upset that we couldn't get the brand name cereal that I wanted, that I would bring a purse of a purse with like, you know, fake credit cards and just like pretending that I was going to buy my own groceries. And I just remember thinking, I cannot wait until the day I can buy my own groceries and get all the brand name stuff that I want. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I didn't have a purse, but I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I sort of started my own couple of side businesses when I was a kid, like uh, when I was about seven, I convinced all the neighborhood kids to help me collect cans from the bushes in front of 7-Eleven and Rite Aid. And, you know, we'd carry them to those old recycling machines at the grocery store where you, you push in the cans and it spits out a nickel. Yeah. And, like, I was able to buy candy and small toys from doing that. Um, and then I also learned how to leverage talent then, I think. And I convinced my friends to give me all the cans. And for every can, I'd give them a single Skittles. And then I would go in get a bunch of bags of Skittles, but I realized that you could, you know, you could get like five cans, got you a bag of Skittles, but it would only cost you um, like one Skittle per kid. So, you know, you'd net out positive on that. So you're like the Skittle master. master <laughs> Skittle yeah, I, king. I, I, I sort of did that all through my childhood. Like, uh, you know, in third grade, we, our teacher had us open up like these fake stores with fake money and like one kid had colored pencils and another one had post-its and they were all selling them for, I think it was like one fake kid dollar each. And then I just bought all of the post-its and all of the colored pencils from those kids. And then I doubled what I had paid for them. And since I cornered the market, like everyone had to buy everything from me. So I feel like I'd always, I, business was sort of in my blood from when I was little. Yeah. Sounds like it, especially with your parents and being in the store downstairs, you know, all the time working. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's a really awesome experience. Did you think at that time that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I, I, I didn't know. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know what the word meant. Yeah. I mean, I, it was just, it wasn't even, um, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't even something you could even dream about, right? Like it mm -hmm. wasn't even something real. It was just like, you wanted to go to a place where you could have a job and you could, you know, take care of yourself and your family. And so I never yeah. really, I never really thought that I would be anything 
else when I was a kid. I was just like, I'm going to go get a good job and I'm going to go, you know, hopefully have a house and take care yeah. of that myself. And, and that was it. Where's the um, money? Yeah. <laughs> and, no, I mean, honestly, like, yeah. you know, some people talk about these, these, uh, you know, they had all these aspirations and, but, you know, I think, I think you have to come from a place where you could have those dreams. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, I, I feel like this is why representation actually matters so much. Like you have yeah. to be able to see something uh, and see yourself in that position in order to, to achieve it. Um, yes. It, it, it's just, it's just interesting. Like, you know, when, when I was in college, I, one of the things, and I love, I love education for me, education was the ticket out. Um, but then I, I sort of leaned on education, you know, even for my first business and, I started a tutoring company and it was just started with me tutoring, you know, kids visiting their homes. And after four years, I had five centers in five cities and a dozen tutors working for me. And it was just, it sort of became a thing. And, you know, I, I, I realized at that time, I thought it, like teaching was my calling. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sort of went on to, to pen to pursue a PhD um, and then realized that, you know, previously I had been, I'd never been the smart kid in school, but I always just worked really hard. Um, but that was the first time I didn't love education. And I wasn't, it, no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't able to succeed at it. Hmm. And so then I, you know, I did what, what a lot of kids from Penn do is you go, you go in investment banking and <laughs> you do it for the money, right? Like a little, yeah. Um, and how was for, that experience? You know, for, for for a poor brown kid whose first words weren't English, who had never gotten the toys, the shoes, the clothes, like yeah. a six-figure salary was sort of out of the realm of possibility, right? Mm. And and I think this is where I learned to work hard. Uh, it was it was invaluable. I learned to value businesses, understand metrics that people valued understand the value of management teams, business models, how to read a P&L, like yeah. all the things that, frankly, I wish they would teach in. I actually think the biggest failure of education is not teaching in finance and accounting in school from the time you're a child. Yeah, but, I agree. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like I learned all of that in 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 a few years of investment banking. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, at the time, and I think most investment bankers will tell you, like, especially when you're a young banker, it's a miserable existence. Mm-hmm. But uh, I look fondly back at it because, you know, I learned a lot from it. Yeah, I agree with you. I really wish that they would teach those things early on. I mean, I had to self-teach my, myself all of those things when I started my business. And it was a challenge. You know, I really wish that they would teach that early on. Um, so what did you end up deciding to do after after you graduated? So after after I graduated, I went to banking, and after banking, I went to private equity. Um, I joined a brand new firm. We raised a billion dollars in two thousand eight, which was the very bottom of the Great Recession. Yeah. Um, and it was just it was interesting because again, I got to learn about different industries. It was different than banking because you got to put your money or you know your investors' money where your mouth was. Mm-hmm. You got to really see the best management teams, you got to see what made them tick, you got to see strategies that, you know, were implemented that worked and ones that didn't. And to me, that's what inspired me to go out and and 
try and start a business and and lead companies like that that to me was what what changed my perspective because mm-hmm. um I missed being an operator right from the early days of tutoring or from third grade making my own little shop or even helping my parents run their 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 small little card and gift shop right i i I miss doing that and so um for me i uh, you know private equity was amazing also but i really wanted to i wanted to to lead something yeah and you know what were some of those things that you learned um from those days of what worked and what didn't work when you mentioned you know best management teams and strategies what were some of those takeaways so so some of those that i that i still implement today is is really if i can do your job better than you you shouldn't work for me <laughs> i i really shouldn't be able to do anyone's job right the, and so i really do follow that like we we need to we hire best in class talent we um train best in class talent and we 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 give them the opportunity and the ability to succeed. Um, yeah. I really believe in the best idea winning, regardless of the position or title. So something I've developed over the last few years is, um, I call it the ambush. So if someone brings an idea to their supervisor or to me, and I don't like it, but they know their idea is great, or they know that I'm wrong, mm-hmm. their job is to convince three other people that they're right. And they are supposed to ambush the supervisor or myself and explain that they're right. And our jobs as leaders is to listen. Because if you've got four people who are telling you that this is the right approach, yeah, you, you damn well should listen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always felt like uh, those things sort of get lost in a lot of organizations and cause them to stagnate or, um, or let egos decide. And I always yeah. just want the best... I want I want the best execution and the best ideas to win. Um, mm. I'm I'm I think most of the people on my team would tell you I'm brutally honest. Like some people beat around the bush. I just give it to people straight. Like I don't pull any punches. But mm-hmm. then I'll you know I'll get in the trench with you and help you fix the problem if it, and, and then we'll just put it behind us. I also yeah. think there's no job that I won't do. Mm. I mean whether it's wiping counters, taking out the trash, I believe no job is beneath any of us. Yeah. And we're all rowing on the boat to together. So all all the efforts help. So I I, I always feel like um, those are the sort of team members I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really, I think, I think a lot of times it's lost, but margins, 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 that's the whole game, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people find success in raising money. A lot of people think that's the end game, but a lot of people don't think about, you know, how profitable their, their products that they sell have to be. And they don't realize the ramifications of what that does when you're diluting yourself with raising money or how much growth you can expect out of your own cash flows. So I, I think I spend a lot of time sort of ingraining that into my team and ingraining that into you know, any of the, um, any founders that I, I spend time talking to. Yeah. It's all about the margins. That's, uh, something my husband and I joke about. It's all about the margins. Um, and I agree with you. And I think that, you know, unfortunately a lot of times founders get kind of really caught up with passion. Um, and they 
kind of spend so much time and money developing a product that end up having like horrible margins or they can't improve them very enough or well. And it becomes kind of a bit of a, a heartbreaker disaster. So um, being able to you know, figure out what those are early on and not getting too caught up in the emotional part and creativity, but also the analytical number side is, is really important to balance. I, I, I agree. And I think there's so many businesses at, at, at Velocity Snack Brands that we evaluate for acquisition that, mm-hmm. that are incredible ideas, but, um, but the financials just don't work out. They don't pan yeah. out from, from a whole host of things from, having negative margins to uh, not understanding that, that, you know, volume doesn't necessarily lead to profitability and things, you know, what can scale and what can't. And so I think, um, you know, I do think that there's a magic to when founders start businesses that you have to, you have to fiercely believe that yours is the right way and you have to be fiercely defiant of the status quo. Yes. But, but, at, but at some point um, you have to understand that there has to be a, a market and a price fit for your product. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. Before we get on to, you know, how you got to become CEO of Velocity Snacks, I'd love to kind of dive in. I know that you um, were at Arctic Zero and have a lot of experience there. So um, can you tell us kind of how that started and what that journey was like? Sure. So I, I was in private equity and I was thinking about going to either go, you know, either continue in private equity or go and do something. And a, a friend introduced me to the founder of Arctic Zero. I love the idea. I love ice cream. I love the product. Um, and so we worked out of a garage and then a warehouse. Uh, I spent a decade there and we built that brand completely self-funded. So we never raised a dime uh, to being in about 18,000 doors. And it really felt amazing to build something that was tangible. Yeah. Um, and have this incredible team that was just so supportive. It felt really amazing to build something that was tangible, right? Like going to the store and seeing your products there. And I'm still excited anytime I see any of our products launch um, or any of the brands with, with whose you know, friends' brands. I, I just love going there. I'm always resetting shelves. My wife won't go grocery shopping with me because I'll <laughs> spend an hour and a half in the grocery store. I have to walk every aisle. Um, and she's like, I just sent you in for milk. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you need to know um, what's going on in here. And see what new brands are out here. I got yeah. doing my research. I need to see the packaging. <laughs> I want I want to understand what's going on. I needed to call some people along the way, but it's just uh, it it was really an incredible experience um because everyone there, no one came from the food industry, so we sort of figured everything out, I would say the hard way. Mm. But because we figured it out the hard way, we were able to 
accomplish a lot of things uh, because we didn't know what the status quo was. So we just built it. And so I always tell my team, never, never accept the status quo. Like just never accept no, or that's the way it is, or that's the way other people do it. Like I, it, and I, I think that has served me well, uh, both at Arctic Zero and also now at PSB. And so building that company, um, Arctic Zero, what kind of, um, you know, takeaways, I guess, from that learning experience and that playbook that you built there, have you kind of brought to where you are now or advice you give? So I, I think I think every brand is is different. And I think every category is very different, right? Mm-hmm. So frozen is very different than salty snacks. Yeah. But I think... I think bringing a data-driven approach to both pitching the product, to developing the product, to selling the product is really critical uh, in today's marketplace. Um, That's what the retailers care about. Um, Those are the things that really move the needle. Um, I also believe that you have to have some emotional connectivity to consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to resonate with them. And I think that, that, that frankly, both brands do that. Uh, they just do it in different ways. And what are those different ways? So I think like with Arctic Zero, there's this, people, are, there's this permissive indulgence, right? You can eat a whole pine. It's 150 calories. It's uh, plant-based. It's just, it's, it's just a different type of product than most of the products that are out in the marketplace, which is why it had a, a, a huge growth first mover advantage. Um, so Pop, Ch- Pop Chips also was the first better for you potato chip brand, right? It had that when, when it was developed, uh, previously, almost all the potato chips had been fried. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this brand had developed a new way of popping potato chips. So um uh, it's truly popped. If if you saw this equipment, it's it's incredible. Like the, you know, it comes down on the potato, uh, pressure and heat, and it and the and the potatoes actually pop. Wow. Um, and so again, that 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 connects in a different way with consumers. The the need state and the the um the use case for for snacks are definitely different, right, than they are for for ice cream or an ice cream replacement. And so I think, again, being able to really connect with the consumers and how they consume the products was very important for this brand. And it continues to be, um, especially as snacks in general has become very fragmented, right? Over the last, when Pop Chips was launched in 2007, they were sort of the, the first mover. They were the first one to come out with something better for you than all you know, your traditional uh, fried potato chips. Mm -hmm. Um, But now there is so many uh, options for consumers, right? Out of so many different ingredients, which is actually why we launched some of our our new innovation over the last couple of years. We launched uh, Nutter Puffs, which are, um, you know, uh, there are puffs that are coated in peanut butter or peanut butter and chocolate. And we've launched grain-free pop chips uh, this year that are made out of cassava and we've launched a, a, a corn chip uh, that is not fried. So it's got so much less oil, so much less fat than the leading corn chip. Um, but it's absolutely incredible. I've been, I've been consuming them like crazy every day. 
like I said before, before we got started, I'm a huge fan of the barbecue pop chips. They are my favorite, uh, snack. So, um, yeah, I, I love that you guys are doing some grain free things and yeah, coming out with a bunch of other, other items, which is awesome. Um, you mentioned packaging. I'm really curious your thoughts about packaging. Packaging is a very competitive situation for brands. You know, it's the one thing that draws a consumer's attention on the shelf. You know, what kind of learnings have you kind of accumulated over time on packaging design? Well, packaging is most of your advertising is your packaging, right? You can do as much TV, social media, et cetera, but the real place of connection and the place of purchase for most brands that aren't D2C um, are on shelf. So packaging, I think, is the whole game. Um, I think I think in, in our category, better for you ingredients, clean ingredient decks, those are all table stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being able to communicate the points of differentiation on your packaging are so crucial, right? And so you've got a number of brands that that put nothing on the front, no attributes. You've got a number of brands that put, you know, 50 things on the front. Oh, yeah. I'm exaggerating, but they put everything on the front. Right. But I think I think the magic is really in figuring out what consumers love your brand or what consumers to target. And what is the true messaging that uh, resonates with them? And then also, how do you make sure your product your your product is front and center? And how do you make sure the packaging separates itself from the rest of the category, but also from from yourself, right? Because it's it, it's there are some amazing brands, but it's very hard to tell their flavors being different from each other because they all look very identical. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, we, we're working hard and we continue to work hard to improve our packaging to make mm-hmm. sure that it's, 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 it's iconic, it's recognizable, but the consumers can very quickly say, hey, I want a barbecue or I want a crazy hot or I want a sea salt or I want a Cajun honey. Yeah. And so, you know, when it comes to Velocity Snacks, how did the opportunity come along for you to be CEO? So... I, I think I think the story goes back a little bit in terms of the food and bev landscape. Um, for about ten years, it it was about it was the food and bev landscape was the wild west or the gold rush, mm-hmm. and there were so many brands that were started and um, by founders. So much money was raised and. A, a select few of them were sold for very large dollar amounts. And so what that did was it caused more capital into the ecosystem. And, you know, it sort of just built, built upon itself. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening was the multinationals that made a lot of those acquisitions um, did so unsuccessfully. So a lot of those brands sort of didn't fit the culture of their acquirers. They didn't fit the size requirements. They just didn't fit the business type. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen over the last couple of years, a lot of those businesses get sold back. Um, yeah. Right? Like Zyka was just sold back to Mark Rampola or Crave was just sold back to a John Sebastiani. And you've seen a lot of brands, uh, a multinational start shutting down some of the brands that they acquired. But 
my belief is that oh, there are a lot of great brands out there who do have that emotional connectivity to their consumer base and do service a niche demographic. And they, they deserve to be. And unfortunately, because they raised a lot of money, uh, but weren't able to exit, it leaves them in a bad spot because they raised money for fast growth. In, there's two options, right? You could raise money for fast growth and hope to get sold for a very large number or grow slowly, uh, maybe not take in that money and stay independent. Mm-hmm. And so VSB sort of met a need for those brands that couldn't get to exit velocity, but also couldn't support their own infrastructure. They couldn't support a CEO, a CFO, an ops team, a sales team, a marketing team. And so I partnered with VMG to come together to fill a need in this marketplace, to find a home for a lot of these brands that, that, that otherwise wouldn't have a home, but also to partner with some of those brands in, in that first category or in that other category where maybe they do want uh, a best-in-class team to help market and sell and operate their brands. So we wanted there to be an option for these brands besides stay independent or sell to a multinational. So that's, that's really the intersection of what, where v- VSB uh, exists. And um, it was interesting because we got the opportunity to buy pop chips. Mm-hmm. And the, the question we always get asked is why pop chips? Yeah. And, and, and for us, pop chips was just the iconic an- anchor brand. The first better for you potato chip brand has 89% brand awareness. It's in nearly every grocery store in the country. So it has national footprint, national distribution. So as, as the anchor for this platform, there, there's no, there was no second choice, right? This was the best opportunity. And now as we plan to go out and acquire other businesses, uh, not just in salty snacks, our plan is to go after salty sweetened confectionery, so candy and cookies and nutrition bars and sort of build them on this one platform. Um, And so that's where we've started. We also plan, like I said, to partner with uh, entrepreneurs on the businesses that maybe they want to grow and start, but don't necessarily want to build their own independent business. And then also we're partnering with retailers to incubate brands with them. So a lot of times retailers want to partner with companies that um, can guarantee supply, companies that can execute well, and they, they're the ones who, have, who know the gaps in the marketplace. So we want to be able to go to them and say, hey, we're happy to produce this with you, uh, potentially exclusively, potentially not, but after a couple of years, we'll probably take it nationally. And so that was that was the other option. And as we've spoken to retailers, it's something that they've been exceptionally excited about. So when you're evaluating companies, you know, to potentially acquire or partner with, um, what do you look for most? I mean, I think, I think when you're valuing companies, there's a lot of metrics, Mm -hmm. but I think first and foremost, does it serve an unmet need? And does that brand have emotional connectivity to its consumers? 
How do you measure that? How do you measure that emotional connectivity? So you can measure it through uh, their social channels. So you can tell based on their engagement. You can tell based on, um, you know, some of it is just, we have a couple of different tools that we use to, to look at their reviews on Amazon and other sites and aggregate and see like, basically how ecstatic are their consumers about their products and about their brand? And does it really resonate with them? And does it really impact their lives? Um, I think that, you know, it, it's always a little subjective, but, you know, if you, if you find a brand where every, every product is a three-star review, it's probably not doing the same thing. I'd rather have a much smaller, you know, I'd rather have 500 reviews that are five-star than 10,000 reviews that are three-star, right? Yeah. Like, I think it's, it's, but also it's the language when people, when people take the time to write a review, it's like, this has changed my life. This is, I used to be this. I used to not be able to do this. And now I can do this. I think those are the sort of things that really, um, how can it be meaningful in people's lives? Sort of what we look to answer. Along with the metrics that we sort of talked about before, right? Yeah. Can we get to an appropriate gross margin profile? And maybe, mm -hmm. maybe the existing team or the existing founder, because they haven't scaled the business, uh, is not at that stage. But we definitely uh, have some resources and the breadth of contacts with manufacturers to be able to very quickly assess whether or not if we pull them into our network uh, and use our, you know, our volume pricing, mm -hmm. can we get it to a point that that is sustainable and scalable? Very interesting. And so is there any kind of particular stage of company um, you look for? Like do they have no. to have a minimum in revenue or no, we, 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 we have looked at things from a uh, hundred million dollars of revenue down to, uh, you know, uh, some brands that are, that are just ideas. Um, so we're, we're really just interested in, in, in partnering with the right brands and the right products. Um, and obviously, uh, um, we're, we're, we're always looking, so we're open to, uh, to, to anyone, uh, I'll let your, Listeners, uh, feel free to, to reach out to us. Awesome. Um, so what has been one of the biggest challenges um, that you've experienced as a leader, whether it was at Arctic Zero or at uh, Velocity Snacks? You know, what's a really challenging moment that you've had to overcome? I mean, I, I, I would say that the, the pandemic yeah. <laughs> that's happening right now that is... That was a little challenging for people. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I would tell you, um, you know, I, I, we acquired uh, Pop Chips in, on October 1st of 2019, and the pandemic sort of hit five and a half months later. Yeah. Um, and so we were still putting in place our new team. Um, we have a manufacturing plant. Uh, and we went from, you know, operating, um, you know, on full filling orders to all of a sudden having shortages and all of a sudden not even knowing what sort of communication to give out because there was no, there was no national uh, ownership or, or, or authority on what you should do. Right. I mean, it was, it was some things were as simple as me duct taping Clorox wipes on every single forklift. 
right? We're like, I don't know, maybe this will do it. Or it was coming up with ideas of how do we reduce touch points? Because at that time right. in March, no one knew if you touch something, did you get COVID? Like right. no one had a clue, right? So we were taking doors off hinges. We were like, we just didn't know. And, and the whole world didn't know, right? And right. so a lot of that was just, how do we try and think of the safety of our team and continue to provide food, uh, you know, for, for, for America. Right. And Mm -hmm. so we were just, it was just a, this constant game of communication and learning. We, 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 I'll give you an idea. We came up with two positions called shift wardens and their jobs were literally to yell at people to stay six feet apart if they got too close to each other. Right. Like, you they know, and then, they're like carrying around a ruler, basically, or, or, you know, two weeks later, you know, we said, okay, um, everyone has to wash their hands every two out, right? Like it was just this constant game of how do we try and keep as many people safe as possible and keep the plants running, keep everyone employed, keep, keep everyone safe. Um, at a time when you really didn't know what, your actions were accomplishing or not. Right. And right. we went from sending all our office people, we were all at the plant and then we were like, well, we're not going to send our office people home to, okay, we're going to send our office people and they're all going to work from home now because, um, you know, we want to make sure we limit contact. And so it was just a, right. Uh, I mean, I, I think that it's hard for people to sort of fathom the, the continuous level of like, ideation and whack-a-mole that 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 occurred in the communication we were holding meetings daily on what can we do to keep our people safe uh what can we what what happens if someone gets covid mm-hmm. i mean it went to do we have people eat their lunches in their cars that's what we did like how do you wow. limit contact so yeah. um close the break rooms take out the microwaves it, it, it was just this constant um you know, you couldn't be strategic at all. It was purely like, how do we make sure people are safe and just one after another? And it was just an interesting time because you also saw orders skyrocket, right? Because everyone mm. stopped eating out. And so everyone was eating at home. Everyone was was stocking up or hoarding right. or whatever. So it was just the world sort of changed overnight. And it was just... Um, it was definitely an interesting time. I, I, I feel fortunate that we were in a category that, that, that sort of did well during this time. But, you know, my heart goes out to the restaurant owners and the retail yeah. businesses that, that frankly struggled. I mean, our, for us, we had a huge component of our business that was schools and food service and airports, and that completely disappeared. Yeah. Right. And so we, we had production plans for that, that we had to just tear out and, it, it was just what an interesting percentage of the business was that um it was about 20 percent of the business um you know and and when you have 60 90 day lead times on things right like uh it has an effect on the business right yeah. we were, i mean we literally the week before we had been making stuff for schools and then all of a right. sudden we had no place to ship it <laughs> oh my gosh right so what did you guys end up doing with it uh, we ended up donating a lot of it. I mean, okay. uh, a, a very significant amount of it. Um, you know, um, food insecurity. I I grew up with some food insecurity. I mean, I still use coupons and buy products when they're on sale. And so for me, making sure that um, making sure that none of the food was wasted was very important. Absolutely. So 
what's a routine or activity or thought process that helps you stay on track and, and positive? You know, CEOs carry an enormous amount of responsibility and weight on their shoulders. What do you do to reduce stress? I, I mean, I, I feel like I've got the best stress relievers in the world. I've got, I've got a, a four-year-old who's got unbound energy and, <laughs> and, you know, wants to come on the computer and, and, and run her own potato chip business. So she comes on the computer and thinks she's doing that. And I've got a new baby. And, and so I, I, I think, um, you know, for me, I do that. And then, I mean, personally, I, I, I always make sure I take some time for myself. I try and read every night. And then I, I, I try, I used to be better at uh, yoga five times a week, but now it's usually down to like two or three times a week. But it's just, it's, it's something to clear the head and make sure that um, you can start afresh, right? Because if, if all you're doing is, if you're in only in this world, you can't, uh, you can't think upstream. And it's really... Mm-hmm. As a leader, it's our job to think upstream. Absolutely. So what are you currently reading? Anything good? Any books that you'd recommend? Um, I, I just finished a book called uh, Wabi Sabi. And it's a... Uh, what is a, that it's, about? It's, it's a really interesting book. It's, it's, it's hard to define, which is why there is no... It's a, it's, it's a Japanese word that, has, that is not defined in Japan, but they know what it is when they feel it. And it's this... It's this um, basically accepting that um, ac- accepting imperfection, hmm. um, and it's and, and not just in yourself but in all things. And there's a, a calmness that comes with that imperfection and an acceptance that comes with it. And then um, and then right now I'm reading uh, Upstream, which is this uh, really interesting book about how how even big companies or small companies end up thinking in very small siloed ways. And I think there's a really great story there about Expedia where, um, as I mean, we know Expedia now, but you know, I think this was in 2012, they were handling a hundred, what was it? 20 million phone calls a year Um, of customer service. And basically so for every person who uh, for every person who uh, booked a reservation, fifty eight percent called afterwards. And the whole point of a booking engine online is to <laughs> not have to have any customer service. Yeah. And so twenty million calls a day, uh, I mean a year, twenty million calls a year, and they found out that most of it was because people weren't getting their itinerary, and it mm. was just this crazy. They had gotten very good at taking the call times down from 10 minutes to two minutes, but no one had ever thought about what if we just found a way to not have them call at all. And so it took, uh, it took a couple of people to realize that they were spending a hundred million, $5 a phone call, 20 million phone calls a year, hundred million dollars. And no one thought, could we just make these phone calls go away? And they did. And then... That's it. 20 million phone calls just disappeared overnight. And so it was just, how do you, how do you think like that? And there's a, there's a whole, what I like about it is there's just like a ton of examples of, of how to think upstream versus just get stuck in, you know, making your current system a little bit better, a little bit. So how do you create step change? A lot of it. 
or just better like communication. Like, you know, it's kind of like, how does that happen? I think there's a lot of people listening, like what is going on in that organization that that is not, that they didn't, that communication didn't happen, that that happened 20 million times, you know, before realizing that, that, I mean, there's a huge gap right there in communication. It wasn't 20 million, like, how come no one caught it at 7 million yeah. or 10 million Maybe like or 15 million? Yeah, right. And so I, again, I agree. I agree that communication is, is the key. And, and, and we focus on it on, on VSB and we focused on it today. How do we improve meeting hygiene? How do mm. we make sure that every meeting we hold adds value to every single person who's on the meeting? Yes. And how do we eliminate how do we save people time, right? Like mm-hmm. meetings are expensive. They're a big resource. If you have 10 people on a meeting in an hour, like that's, that's a hundred, you know, that's 10 hours, right? Like that's expensive. The, yeah. Expensive, you're, right? you're paying so, them for that time in that hour. Well, it, uh, it's not even us, it. our salaries. It's like, what else could they be doing yes. for the organization or even on their own time? So we, we spent a lot of time thinking on how, how do we make sure Every meeting is efficient, every meeting is effective, and every meeting has the desired outcome. Um, and it's actually been, on a, if we were talking challenges, moving from an in-person workforce to a remote, especially during, during COVID, has, has had those challenges, right? You can't just walk up to someone and ask a two-minute question and walk away. Right. Everything becomes scheduled. Everything becomes a 30-minute or 45-minute mm-hmm. or an hour meeting. And so I think trying to figure out, hey, what does what what decision does each of these meetings lead us to? What discussion meetings should not just be informational because then you should just share you just email. share the info, right? Yeah. Send an email, right? <laughs> and so just just even little things like that 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 free up pe- people's time and energy to focus on strategy. Absolutely. And what advice do you have for meeting hygiene? I like that you said, use the word hygiene, or even just having an effective meeting. What are some things that you've learned or implemented that, you know, you're able to now conduct a, an effective meeting? All meetings have to have an agenda. Uh-huh. I mean, number uh, one, number agenda. one, all meetings have <laughs> to uh, answer the, basically they have to answer uh, two, two questions, but really it's one question. And what we do is all meetings need to have in the first sentence of the invite, this meeting is to discuss X in order to decide Y. And so that forces a decision from each meeting. Again, if, if every meeting, if a meeting is informational, we try and share all of that information mm-hmm. 24 hours in advance. And that allows everyone to be on the same page so that yeah. everyone shows up ready to discuss and decide. So meetings should be 10% informational, 50% discussion, 40% decision or action oriented. That's, that's what we try. Now we're, we're nowhere near perfect. Um, we definitely have our share of free flowing meetings, but we are working to improve that uh, regularly. That's really interesting. I love that. Discuss X to decide Y. 
I think that's really interesting because I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, everybody thinks, oh, meetings, what do you mean? Like having some effective, how do you make them more effective? No, there's actually like a framework that can be helpful. Yep. And so I love that you shared something so tactical because I think it's really important. There's all these things that happen inside of organizations that aren't talked about. And I feel like there's so much insight and value there for the listeners or anybody running a business that they can take away and say, oh, maybe I'll implement that at my company. That actually sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> You know? Well, we, we also tell people that if there's no agenda, they can, they, sh I mean, I, I call it, you know, um, I won't walk into an ambush other than the previous ambush I talked about. But, um, um, so if there's no agenda, I just, I turn down the invite, right? Because again, again, in order to force clarity of thought, in order to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we're, we're making, I want to make sure that people aren't focus just on tasks, we have to be goal oriented organizations. Mm -hmm. And so otherwise, we can sit in 40 to 60 hours of meetings a week and not not accomplish anything, right? We just right. are sharing, sharing, sharing. So it sounds like it's almost like a company policy, because if you don't get the agenda ahead of time, you're like, I'm not even responding to this invite. Yeah, I mean, usually we, someone should respond and say, hey, you didn't send an agenda. Can you please resend the invite with the agenda? I mean, it's, right, right, right. There's it's, a little buffer. Yeah, yeah. Please, please send the agenda. You're um, not just shooting it down. <laughs> not try going. not to. No. 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 <laughs> Again, it's a it's a very collaborative and 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 familial environment, and so we're always just pushing each other to be better. Um, and I think part of that just comes from our ability to be honest with each other and mm -hmm. and share, um, you know, share our feelings, but also just share how things affect us. And I think a lot of times in organizations, you know, someone will make a decision. And I, I've, I've made these mistakes before where I'll say like, let's not do this anymore. And then I didn't see the downstream effects of it. So I, I think communication is like, no matter how many times people talk about it, I think it's very hard to over communicate. And, yeah. um, and I think one of the things that uh, we've done through COVID, and this was never something I did before, but we, we have all hands meetings three times a week now. They're very short. Um, you know, different departments share on different days. Uh, we, we, we celebrate birthdays. We, we, you know, someone gets a new cat. If someone moves, uh, you know, we, we, we share our personal lives a little bit with each other. We, we play some games like Jeopardy. But it's a, we can't do the water cooler, go out for happy hour during this right. last year. And right. if, if you think about it, for, for us, what, 80% of this company has, was created during COVID. Mm -hmm. So we are still sort of figuring each other out and we're still figuring out how to work with each other. And I think yeah. those are the things that allow us to connect. How would you describe your leadership style? I mean, I think every CEO would, if you ask that question, to every CEO, they're always going to say great things. I think the real <laughs> testament to that is you have to ask the people who work for them and then the people who work for those people. Um, I would, I would say that I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm often very tactical, right? And so I will, I will get in the weeds. I'm absolutely data driven, but I, I, I have no problem getting in the weeds. I have no problem running the Excel models checking. I, I like to, uh, you know, I like to trust, but verify. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, you know, I, I but I, I like to be there with my team in the weeds um, alongside them. What do you think your employees would say about you? 
I think they would agree with that and they would say I was tough but fair. All right. Tough but fair. Maybe, maybe, in, in maybe, ways maybe, maybe impatient and a little unreasonable <laughs> would be thrown now in the there. Truth comes out. Now the truth comes out. Well, I mean, I think we all we all have very I have very high expectations, but I don't think the team would would say otherwise. I think we have very high expectations of ourselves mm-hmm. and for what we're trying to accomplish. And so, um, you know, I would I wouldn't hire anyone on our team who didn't also have exceptionally high uh, expectations and ambitious uh, goals. Yeah. We, we really do focus on very ambitious goals every year. Awesome. And so what's the biggest thing you've learned about being a CEO? It's a great question. Um, I think from when I started, I when I started, I thought that I couldn't make any mistakes. Mm-hmm. And if I did, I couldn't cop up to them. Mm. I would I would tell you that I, I, I make plenty of mistakes and I am open and transparent when I make them to my team. If I, you know, I sent an email last week that I think I didn't communicate something clearly mm-hmm. and um, the failure was mine, not theirs. And so yeah. I think, I think sometimes people think of CEOs as these leaders of people and they're not human. And I think right. that I get the best out of my team when I'm honest with them, when I'm human with them and, um, you know, we, we yeah. make mistakes like the rest of them. And so yep. I think just being able to, to say that allows you to be human. And I think, you know, some of the, some of the other mistakes I've made is, uh, you know, sometimes I don't, I, <laughs> my team will say like, oh, but you say everything takes like two days or two weeks, you know, and, and that's probably true. And I think trying to understand from their point of view that, Maybe it's two days or two weeks if you didn't have everything else on your plate. But, um, uh, but uh, you know, those are sort of the the expectations in order to to hit deadlines for what we're trying to accomplish here. What do you think is? Um, how did you kind of realize or switch from being afraid to make mistakes or admit that you made a mistake to owning it and having that accountability tra- more transparent? Like, what caused you to kind of switch over? A long time ago, I, I fired someone that I shouldn't have fired, mm-hmm. and I regretted it. I probably still, re- I, re- I regret it still. And I, uh, it took a, a number of years before I found that person, and I said, I, I screwed up here. I, I shouldn't have done this. Like I got upset, and, um, and the failure was mine. And that person was very forgiving, and was in a much better spot for it now. Um, and, and. And so I, I realized that, you know, it's okay to sort of share that out. And I also think that I can't expect transparency and accountability from my team if I can't be transparent and accountable to them. And so um, if I want them to admit that they made mistakes instead of covering them up, then I have to do the same. Like You, you know, there's no other way. That's very well said. I love that. We're going to use that as a quote, I think. <laughs> That's because it's so spot on. Um, if you could change anything about your career journey, what would you have done differently? I mean, I, I would I would love to have not made um, all, uh, the myriad of mistakes I've made a, a, along the way. That are You're like, I wouldn't numerous. have fired that guy. That's what I would <laughs> That girl. girl, actually. Okay. But yeah, um, yeah. but uh, uh, 
I, I, I don't, I don't usually have, have regrets. I feel like every mistake I've made has allowed me to get me to where I am now and allows me to be the person I am now. And, and while no one is perfect and, I, and I'm far from it, it, I think, I think that bit of un, being uncomfortable and those mistakes have allowed me to grow. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't ever look at, at things like that as, you know, things I'd want to change. Of course, there are things I'd love to have done differently. But, um, but I, you know, you can't go back. So hopefully everything, every mistake and everything you want to change, you change, you, you, there's always time, right? There's time now. Let's, let's, let's make that, make that impact um, and move forward. And what's something you think most people don't know about being a CEO? I think people still believe that you, you, as a CEO, you just call the shots and expect people to do the work. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reality of it is that our job is to show them the way and our, our job is to explain to them the way, but it's not sort of the days of old where you just say, go do this. And, and, and frankly, that's not the team I'd want anyway. Mm -hmm. I think, my team knows that the people I respect the most are the ones that push back on me on things that I'm thinking. And I say, Hey, we should, I think we should do this. And they're like, no, cause it'll, this, 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 this will happen. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's easy to believe that, uh, you know, this is not the military, right? Like there's right. not, I mean, there's a chain of command, but it's not the same as the military. They don't have to follow orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a life or death situation. And so I think I, I believe in in that free flow of information and the ability to engage in you know constructive conversations, and so that to me is more helpful for the organization and is more helpful for for my own growth and my team's growth than just saying go do this because again if I if 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 you do everything I say it's a problem, right? Like yeah. if I, if I'm the only one making the decisions and calling the shots, the organization is screwed up. Yes. And so yeah. you have to, you have to empower the team to do the work and you have to empower the team to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. And part of that is trusting. Part of that is verifying. And part of that is training. Um, and so it might take some time, but that's just part of how you build an organization, or at least for me, that's how I build an organization. Absolutely. I mean, training and mentoring, I think your team is really important and staying away from that culture of, you know, fear, people being afraid to disagree, I think creates a really ugly culture at companies. And it's just not, it's shocking how companies can actually be successful sometimes operating that way, which is very scary, but, um, you know, it's just not a good place or a good environment, um, to be able to grow and foster and like build your voice and, and be heard and, um, make change. So what do you do to help train your team? Well, we, we involve them in, 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 in various aspects of the business, right. From, a, from having a voice and participating in meetings that I think in other organizations, people would be too junior, quote unquote, mm-hmm. too junior. I also am, am very big. I always feel like this happens at big organizations where you're successful at your job. 
you've never hired anyone, you've never interviewed anyone, but you were so successful that you were promoted to a manager. And now you have to train a team, hire a team, manage the like team, yeah. and you've never done it before. And yep. a lot of people fail in that step. I mean, we, we have, when it comes to interviewing, we let our most junior people be involved. Because again, we want them to be able to learn to find talent. We want them to be able, and this is just one example, but we want mm-hmm. them to speak up in the, in the meetings, right? So mm-hmm. we, we have a policy, especially when it comes to hiring, that the most junior person speaks first and then it moves up. Because it's very easy if I say, I think we should hire this guy for everyone else to agree, right? right? It's very easy. But if we have the most junior person and then the le- next most junior person, next most junior person speak up, and they get to analyze the candidates and they get to hear what the next person has to say and the next person, and, and they get to pick up on what they missed. And frankly, I've, I've seen it where the most junior person picked up a, a flaw that no one else did and we right. didn't hire before because of it. And so yeah. I, think, I think those are the s- sort of small steps, but that are really meaningful um, in, in terms of how you get more junior people involved in the process and include them in decision-making. I love that. I love that you, you know, really push for the most junior person to speak first. I think that's really brilliant because you're right. Those are the ones that don't speak up. (laughs) You know, they're like, yeah, I agree with you. Let's do that. (laughs) Yeah. We we, we don't let that happen. It's always, it's, it's always the most junior person starts the conversation. and, And then again, they get a chance to learn, and see what they've missed. And if they completely missed it, then there'll be a secondary conversation be like, I don't, I, you know, I think you were, you, you, you said this, you did this, but a lot of it is also just scripting and, and training, right? Like, how do you, I think everyone says like, what are your strengths? We don't, we don't ask that question. And we definitely don't ask it. Like usually on our interviews, we have eight or 10 people in our organization conduct an interview. And part of that is I never want the interview to be, Oh, hi. Uh, let me introduce myself to the team. It's welcome back. You met a huge chunk of our organization and everyone knows you. Right. And so I think, yeah. again, I think, I think the way we try and approach people from a very human perspective mm-hmm. um, has been, has been crucial to our success. And what do you mean by um, human kind of approach in hiring? Do you have any kind of advice or insights you can share around how you think about hiring or what your process looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think our process uh, our process is different from most most people. I, we we do usually include eight or ten people in the hiring process. Um, people are 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 given a set of questions, and mm-hmm. they're usually the same questions that they ask over and over and over and over again. So, um, for any candidates, right? Like, of course, you'll have your very specific uh, technical evaluations, right? Mm-hmm. Which are which are what they are. But yeah. if, if person X has to ask 10 different candidates across 10, dif- you know, against three different departments every time the same set of questions, he or she will be very good at being able to evaluate across different candidates the answers to those questions, right? And so that's a way of being able to say like, well, this person's applying for a marketing job, but I asked the same set of questions and this same questions across ops and, and um, business intelligence. And it helps them evaluate candidates. And so, again, I think leaving leaving it up to people with no training uh, is a mistake. I think sharing with them, here's what we're looking for. Here's the jo- here's the interview 
here's what you, what piece that we're searching for you to figure out is very helpful. Um, I mean, we, 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 again, we are data driven. So we ask people to take an Excel test. We, um, so we do a lot of background checks, uh, reference checks. Um, and we also being part of the VMG portfolio of brands, we actually have other portfolio companies, uh, help interview as well. And what that's allowed us to do is when someone joins, and this is what I, one of the reasons I partnered with VMG is that you're part of this VMG family. So on the day you start or within maybe not the day, but the week you start, you're introduced to your counterpart across all the port codes. And that allows you to have people you can go to who you don't report to but who can be resources for you who may have solved the same problems or who could ideate and work with you to solve a problem um, and gives you your own peer group. And so again, that's just another way to, to allow people to gain a broader education and broader um, knowledge base. That's awesome. So one last question or two, maybe before we wrap up here, um, you know, growing a business involves a lot of professional and per, uh, personal growth. How have you grown personally as a leader? I, I used to think that I had to do it all. Mm -hmm. um, and now I know that I can't. Yeah. And I think for me, being able to let go is often the hardest part. And being able to let go and give it to people on my team who would do it better, mm -hmm. but different yeah, is still a struggle. And I, I struggle with that now. Um, and so I think the reality of it is th that that has been, that has been the hardest part. Um, I think what, what maybe is, I, I would say I was, my, my, my old team would tell you I was tougher before I had kids. <laughs> that's the kids kind of broke you in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Um, made me be a little bit more patient um, yeah. than I used to be as well. And I think, um, I don't know if that's just kids or just getting old, um, maybe a combination <laughs> of both. But, yeah. uh, but I definitely think that, um, you know, not doing everything and trusting your team to do it, even if they would do it differently for me was, was the, was one of the hardest things to let go of. Mm -hmm. um, but it's frankly the only way to scale, right? Yep. There's only way to scale. Yep. And so what uh, final advice do you have? You've already shared such great, you know, tactical insights and, you know, awesome advice, but do you have anything else you'd like to share for aspiring CEOs or business operators out there? One of the reasons I love the CPG industry um, is that I have gained so much knowledge from others in this industry, people mm -hmm. who have grown businesses, uh, run businesses, had businesses fail. And yeah. I think that they shouldn't, budding entrepreneurs or founders shouldn't be afraid to reach out. I think it's truly great community. And I think this is probably broader than just CPG because I've reached out across other categories. And I think uh, there's so many people who are happy to help that you, you should stand on their shoulders because they've done it before. I would say that getting a mentor is definitely uh, a first step. 
putting together a board of directors or a board of advisors is another step. I think that people are hesitant to show vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a mistake. I think that the more you're willing to be vulnerable and to share your issues and concerns, the more people are willing to help. Awesome. Well, Amit, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing your awesome journey. And your hey, thanks. Thanks. I had a, I had a blast. It was nice talking with you and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, listening to all the rest of the awesome guests that you have on here. Awesome. Thanks for being a fan of the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.